0: Hey everyone, welcome to this podcast brought to you by RaptorAid and hosted by me, Jimmy Hill. During the coronavirus lockdown, we decided to host some live interviews with raptor conservationists and experts from all over the world. The podcast you're about to listen to was recorded during the lockdown period live on Facebook, Apologies if some of it sounds a little bit disjointed and we go a little bit off track with questions from the audience. But hopefully you'll enjoy listening to your favourite expert right here on Raptor Rambles. In this interview we chat to none other than legendary conservationist, Professor Carl Jones of the Dural Institute. Now, Carl knows a thing or two about saving species, and we couldn't not pick his brain about his groundbreaking work saving the Mauritius Kestrel from extinction. But along with that, we go right across the board and we learn so much about what it's like to be on the forefront of conservation and saving endangered species. Right, Okay, we should be live. Thank you very much, anyone who's tuning in already. It's five o'clock. We should be bang on time. Uh, so another live Q and A with Raptor Aid, and I'm very very excited to introduce to everyone Professor Carl Jones, who's joining us from his l- wonderful lounge, which <laughs> with all its with all its uh, wonderful objects behind it but we won't go too much detail. Carl thank you for joining us. Thank
1: you. It's
0: a pleasure and now like I I say to everyone with these things it's just a free-for-all really really it's people aren't really here to listen to me talk it's more about about you talking about your experiences and and the wonderful varied life that you've led Um, and don't feel you have to stick to rap as well I know obviously we're we're beaming this onto RaptorAid on Facebook but don't feel you have to stick to raptors because I know you've uh you've worked across a super broad um spectrum of of animals um and, and so uh so yeah but let's like I said to allow all I say to everyone start from start from the beginning or wherever you want to start from the beginning how you got into birds and you know, going on forwards to Durrell. Start from there and then we'll...
1: Well, I was always interested in birds and as a young lad, I was really fascinated by wildlife in general. As indeed I think most young young people are. And then I started to keep animals, domestic animals, rabbits and guinea pigs and so on. And I started to keep birds and I used to get injured birds that I used to look after. And... um, I had an injured owl and then I had some young kestrels and I thought, wow, this is amazing. What I really liked was that when you had captive animals, you could find out so much more about them and you could actually get to a stage where you could understand them a lot more. And uh, I felt that this was really quite powerful. Uh, Yes, you could study birds in the wild, but when you had them in captivity, there were lots of other things you could understand about them. And I started as a teenager to breed kestrels in captivity. And I thought, my gosh, we could use this as a conservation tool. We could actually breed endangered birds of prey in captivity. And this was in the early 70s. And people were beginning to think that perhaps for some species, captive breeding was the answer. So that's how I really got into raptors. And um, I bred kestrels and I bred buzzards. And I also uh, flew them and rehabilitated them, so I really got fascinated by how we could actually use some of these techniques to conserve species in the wild brilliant
0: well and obviously the kestrel works served you well so if we if we fast forward to how did you get into Dur- Durrell then? Because obviously, my, most people, even if they, if I think about, you know, people who aren't necessarily interested in wildlife, certainly not to the level that people tuning in to this might be, they think of Ger- Gerald Durrell and obviously those wonderful books he used to write. So, how what got you what got you to Jersey basically? What, how did that come about?
1: Well, what happened was that um, I started to breed kestrels in captivity. And then I went to a conference in the early 70s on breeding birds of prey. And I met Tom Cade, who started the Peregrine Fund in North America. And in his lecture, he said, on the island of Mauritius, there is this very rare estrel, which is down to the last few individuals. And he said, I remember him saying it, he says, it is quite savable, He was in captive breeding it can be saved. But he said, unfortunately, I think it's going to become extinct just because of the politics and getting the project to work. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. There's a kestrel there that we could save. And uh, the following year, I actually went to America to meet Tom Cade and a number of other people doing captive breeding. And I said, I want to work on Mauritius kestrels. How do I do it? And uh, I was really inspired by all the work that was being done in North America with the Peregrine Fund. And with the Canadian Wildlife Service and so on, and all the techniques they were then developing, in those days those techniques hadn't come as far as Britain. Yeah. And I thought to myself, "Wow, we can save the Mauritius kestrel." And so I came back to uh, Britain, got to know a number of people, and I understood there was they were looking for somebody to work in Mauritius. And I knew a number of people here in, in Britain who recommended me and said, oh, Carl, it would be great to go and run the Mauritius Kestrel project. And then one day the phone rang and said, uh, Carl, we understand you're interested in Mauritius. Would you like to go out and run the project? Oh Of course, I said, yeah, of course. <laughs> and that's how it started. And I went out there and I was told you're going out there for one or two years. We can't get anywhere with the Mauritius Kestrel. There's too much politics. There's not enough money. There are lots of issues with the birds. And you'll be there for a year or so. And then we want you to pull out and hand over to the locals. And so I went to Mauritius with the original brief that I'd only be there for a short period of time. In those days, the project was not run by Daryl, it was run by a sort of consortium of international organizations. And of course, um, the last thing I was going to do was just to close the project down and hand it over to Mauritians, although the Mauritians, of course, now run it and they're doing an excellent job. In those days, they didn't have the resources to do uh, a a proper job of of breeding the species. They didn't have the the knowledge and they didn't have the, um, the you know, they didn't have the money to run this project. And so uh, I stayed there, managed to raise some money, and uh, Jerry Durrell was already involved with Pink Pigeons, and mm-hmm. uh, after a year or two, he employed me. And mm-hmm. I lived in Mauritius for 20 years, working on the Kestrel and other species. And 41 years later, I'm still involved in Mauritius, and I spend at least three months every year going out there to work on the programmes. That's fantastic.
0: And you, and of course, you're still involved with Durrell as well. So you're, you're Chief Scientist at Durrell, and... What what was the other one you told when we when we spoke the first time on, when I rang you up on the phone? What was the other one? It was the I can't remember the other title you had.
1: You did. Mention- well, I'm I'm chief scientist for Durrell. Um, but in my job description, I'm called a thought leader, which means That's I uh, spend a lot of time thinking about how we can save endangered species and coming up with techniques and ideas. Um, But I also have a role in Mauritius where I'm the scientific director of the Mauritius Wildlife Foundation, which is an NGO that I helped found in the mid 1980s, which is involved in the conservation of wildlife. And what happens in Mauritius is that um, a number of international organizations provide money and uh, help and guidance and so on. But the work is done on the ground by the Mauritian Wildlife Foundation So all the work that was started by myself and my colleagues and all the other organizations is now run by a whole team of young Mauritian managers and biologists. And I just go out there and sort of advise and help.
0: Brilliant brilliant yeah it, it when you said it might have been the, the because when when you said the the fort leader in your job description i'd just not long before like recently watched a documentary on steve jobs of apple and it was and it just it just struck me it was that whole sort of these are ama- these pioneers that go out there and change things and yeah i thought yeah that's a that's exactly where i'd probably put you in the conservation world is uh you went out there, didn't you? When, so, I don't, We won't stay too long on the Mauritius Kestrel, although I know people will be really interested to hear. When you got out there, am I right in thinking, how old were you? 24, there or thereabouts? Yeah, 24. How many birds were there then? So when you
1: got out to the Mauritius Kestrel-wise... It's really a, a, quite an interesting story because when I arrived there, um, they had six birds in captivity and one had actually bred the year before, but in the wild, they knew of one pair. Wow. Uh, but they also knew there were one or two others around. So we could say there were two pairs that they knew of in the wild, one suspected and one known. And we had the six birds in captivity. And uh, when I turned up, I walked around the Averys, I looked at all the birds and I thought to myself, these birds look ill. They really look seedy and I didn't say anything because I was very polite and uh, I started to work with them and you know when you work with birds of prey, you know intuitively whether they're, you know, really happy or not and I was very unhappy with these birds and originally I thought it might be the diet or it might be the captive conditions, we played, worked with all that. And I was also working very closely with a vet in Britain called John Cooper, who was advising us. Mm -hmm. And um, it is coming up to the breeding season. I had six Mauritius kestrels, including two females. I was expecting them all to breed, and they all died. All six captive birds fell off their perches and died over a period of about two or three months. And I was absolutely devastated, as you you can imagine. And at the time, because I was on the phone to vets all the time, I said, they've been poisoned. You know, they're behaving as if they've got a poison. And to cut a long story short, we found out, several years later, actually, but we eventually found out that they had died of DDT poisoning. And what had happened was that the room in which we were breeding the mice to feed the kestrels had been sprayed twice a year for many, many years with DDT before it was ever a mouse room. And we didn't know that. And so the birds had been fed on mice loaded with DDT. And this is, and actually it's quite interesting because Mauritius is quite famous because it is an island that once had lots of malaria, but they got rid of the malaria in the 1950s and 60s by spraying the island with DDT. So there's huge amounts used in Mauritius, and that's why the kestrel declined to such a low level. Anyway, all the captive birds had died, and uh, a lot of the international organizations said, let's give up on the Mauritius kestrel, it's had it and uh i thought no we're gonna have to you know really try and sort this problem out yeah so i um came up with a plan and i said we're going to take the eggs from the last pairs in the wild hatch them in captivity rear them uh, establish them in captivity and breed them and release them back to the wild and i came up with this plan and uh, I developed it with Tom Cade and the Peregrine Fund in North America. And I got permission to do it. And in subsequent years, I went to the last pairs of Mauritius kestrels in the wild and stole the first clutches of eggs. Now, as all raptor biologists know, you take the first clutch, and what do they do? They lay a second clutch. Mm-hmm. And so I basically argued that we could double the productivity and uh, I wanted them to let me take first clutches and then we'd leave the pairs with the second clutches. It didn't always work out exactly as we wanted, but that's essentially what we did. And working under very basic conditions, I took the first clutches, put them in an incubator, hatched them, reared them, and then developed a captive population. Um, I was able to breed from those birds and you know, the rest is history. Over a period of 10 years, we reared in captivity 333 birds, which we then, most of them we released to the wild. They were a mixture, I should say, of birds that we bred in captivity. But when we put the birds back out into the wild, we double clutch them and bring their eggs into captivity. So we managed the wild birds intensively for a number of years. Yeah, And the population grew. And it went from, you know, one or two pairs up to, oh gosh, I don't know what it was at the peak, but we're talking about a hundred pairs or something, a hundred pairs of birds. And it recovered very quickly. And um, I established managed populations of kestrels. So I put up lots of nest boxes. I supplementally fed pairs, and I had wild pairs of kestrels that I trained I could whistle and they'd fly down and I'd give them a mouse and so I had I had managed populations of kestrels in three different areas of Mauritius and uh, we still have kestrels in Mauritius in those three different areas uh, but the population has not been so intensively managed in recent years and the numbers have dropped down okay and so uh, we now only have about three or 400 birds on Mauritius, So not as high as it once was when it was perhaps five or 600 birds. And we are gonna start um, some more intensive management to get the the numbers of birds back up. And I think there's a very important lesson here is that critically endangered species, you can't just restore them and turn your back on them. Very often, you've got to carry on managing long-term. And so this is one of the things I've been trying to develop is this whole idea of long-term management of species. And how can we do that without expending huge amounts of resources? What is the minimum amount of management we need to maintain populations? And then how do we actually restore those populations and restore the problems or correct the problems and then step back? So that's what I've been doing with with the kestrel, but also with other birds. And my whole, the whole thing I've been trying to develop is how can we actually manage critically endangered species and use those as a catalyst for correcting the problems in the wild and also restoring other populations of endangered species. And so we moved from working with the Mauritius kestrel to working with the pink pigeon. (laughs) And when we started on that, we had just nine or ten left in the wild. And we restored that. We've now got four or five hundred of those in the wild. And then we moved on to the Mauritius parakeet, the echo parakeet. And when we started working with that, we had only eight to twelve known birds and only one breeding pair. And we're now up to 750 of those. And I've also worked on a number of other species, including passerines, on the island of Rodrigues. Um, There's a small little weaver bird called the Rodrigues Fodi, Mm -hmm. that declined to a known population of only 12. And I've also worked on a population of warbler, which was once thought extinct. So there are five species of birds that we've worked on in Mauritius that had known populations at their lowest of 12 or less that we've now restored to populations of hundreds or thousands. And the Rodriguez warbler once thought to be extinct, clearly only a handful left. We've now got 20,000 of those. So five species of birds that without management would be extinct or possibly extinct. And in total, we actually have nine species of vertebrates that, without our our conservation actions, we would have lost, including three species of reptiles and also a fruit bat. So these techniques of intensive management can work very, very well. And what's really fascinated me is that you start with a species, you spend a decade or more restoring it, and then you don't stop, You've got to say to yourself, let's start correcting the problems in the environment. Let's start rebuilding the system. Let's start working on other species. And so the work that started with the Mauritius Kestrel has moved on to saving all the other critically endangered species, but also in rebuilding systems. Mm-hmm. Now that's the real challenge. And In Mauritius, we have set up a national park. We set up the first national park, which of course we did with the government. And we've also been restoring small offshore islands and putting species back on those. So my job has involved restoring critically endangered species, putting them back in the wild, helping to solve the problems in the environment, then rebuilding whole systems remaking lost systems. And what's really interesting in Mauritius, as undoubtedly you'll know, Mauritius is famous because of its extinctions. And the dodo's gone. Unfortunately, we don't have the technology to bring it back just as yet. We can't do a sort of Jurassic Park. And I remember thinking when I was restoring these species, I thought, well, what we really need is to rebuild the whole ecosystem. But how can you rebuild ecosystems when species have disappeared, they've become extinct? And so I read a great deal. I read all the early accounts on Mauritius, and I read these wonderful accounts of the forest all the way down to the sea, about herds of giant tortoises, flocks of parrots, and, you know, wonderful profusion of life. And compared to today, where Mauritius is sort of a devastating, devastated ecology, it's a beautiful island, but there's very little native wildlife left. And I thought, how can we rebuild these systems? So I thought to myself, well, there were lots of giant tortoises here that have now become extinct. Let's bring back another giant tortoise that's closely related. And I remember very well, I started talking about this in the 1980s. And I kept saying to my colleagues, you know what we should do? is we should bring back replacements for the extinct species so that we can start to rebuild ecosystems. And they all said, don't be so stupid. Of course, you can't put an exotic species back to replace one that's become extinct. Anyway, I spent 20 years working on it. And I um, we did a lot of studies, and we were able to show that a lot of the native plants in Mauritius are co-evolved with tortoises. And so I reframed the whole argument and I went to my colleagues and I said, if we don't bring back tortoises, do you realize that all these plants are gonna become extinct because they need tortoises to spread the seeds and to maintain the vegetation community, the grazing climax community? And they said, no, we don't believe you. And so we did some studies and we were actually able to show that the tortoises were essential for these plants to survive. And so I said, let's bring back tortoises to replace the extinct ones. And it took 20 years, but I managed to convince people that we should do that. And in the meantime, I'd been breeding tortoises in my back garden in Mauritius. And so I had a bunch of tortoises there. And I said, well, I got the tortoises, let's do the work. And the conservation community, would not back me. I couldn't get any support. And my bosses said, look, this is a bit dodgy. We really don't want to be involved with this, but if you want to do it on your own, well, it's up to you. (laughs) And I spoke to some of my academic friends and I said, let's look at the whole idea of using ecological replacements, analogs as I, I called them. And I got some funding from the University of Bristol. And I got some funding from the uh, University of Zurich. And they were both interested in looking at food webs and how species interact. And we hired a PhD student and we did some studies over a number of years. And we were able to show definitively that the Tortoises were essential for maintaining a vegetation community. We then went with the results to the government and also to the the conservation organizations, and everybody said, okay, let's try it. And we started off by releasing tortoises on small offshore islands. We started off by putting them on a a 60-acre island, and they did very well there. And then after we put them on the island nature reserve of... Round Island, which is 215 hectares. And uh, to this day, we now have 650 tortoises there, and they're now breeding. Mm-hmm. And we are, we're doing lots of studies on them. And we're actually able to show that they're s- starting to restore the lost vegetation community that they used to maintain by grazing. So I started off as a species manager, and I'm now working, restoring whole systems, and thinking about the, how you do that and what it means, and also thinking about conservation. Because what we're doing in a hugely modified world, we're not turning back the clock, because we can't do that with climate change and human impacts. And so what we're now trying to do is we're trying to think about reframing conservation When I started in Mauritius, we were very much trying to preserve what was there. It was very much protection. There was a lot of opposition to hands-on conservation, to captive breeding and reintroduction. That was regarded as a little bit messy. We've moved on from that. We've moved on from just trying to protect things to trying to really looking after them and making sure that we are managing them into the future. But we're also now thinking about rebuilding systems and sometimes rebuilding systems with novel elements. And I think the aim of conservation is not to preserve and turn the clock back. Although if we can do that, that's fine. But we've got to think about rebuilding systems that benefit the maximum of biodiversity. And so we've got to think about putting species back, but also about their roles as browsers, or pollinators, or grazers, or predators. So we're talking about functional systems. So that's what I think a lot about, is how do we actually move from working with individual species, and there I was as a young, naive biologist went out to work with a Mauritius Kestrel, and I thought that was my goal, And I thought that, wow, if I can save the Mauritius Kestrel, I'd be a happy bloke. And now, 40 odd years later, I'm thinking about rebuilding whole systems. And how do we do that? And of course, one individual can't do that. And so I've been very lucky to work with a team of people. I work with many fantastic academics. And we've turned our conservation programme in Mauritius, Into a training program where we train people in conservation biology and we do lots of research. And we have, over the last 40 years, produced close to 50 PhD studies out of Mauritius. And we've trained hundreds of people and we've had people working there from about 35 different countries. So we've moved a long way from working with the Kestrel to actually thinking about how we can do conservation and do it a lot better.
0: I mean, it's just I'm just sat here with a big grin on my face because it feels like I've just had a complete uh, education on 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 it. That that was that was wonderful to listen to. I wanted to ask you a, a like a sort of personal question in many, in some ways because it would appear as you, you know the whole the breadth of of um, work you've just discussed. What what do you think is the, sort of one of the defining traits that you've got car because obviously as you were discussing that then things that the thing that kept cropping up is is knockbacks no that's not possible no we're not going to let you do that no that's not a good idea what would you say have you got can you put a finger on your defining trait or you know for, for anyone else that's that's in the conservation field that that gets because there is a lot of knockbacks in in life in general never mind just conservation yeah but while i've got you carl jones sat in front of us what do you think's the defining trait that made you think no well we can do this okay you know whether it's the kestrel whether it is the tortoise whether it's other ngos pulling out and you know you're on your own essentially yeah what's the defining trait of carl jones that made
1: this happen if you very lucky i think um that I had some very good mentors and there were three people that greatly influenced me in life and really helped me and when time was really tough they supported me. Um, Tom Cade was uh, a great visionary and he taught us or he taught me and he's also taught the world the value of really hands-on management. I also worked with a New Zealander called John Merton who was very famous for restoring the kakapo and the Chatham and black robin. And of course, Gerald Durrell was also very supportive. But I knew, I knew intuitively, because I'd kept birds in my back garden when I was a young lad, I knew I could save the kestrel. And when people kept saying, no, it's not saveable, the captive birds had died, it's not gonna work if you take the, the eggs. It never ever once crossed my mind that it would fail. I just knew it would work. And I could just see it in my mind. I could just see all the steps. And uh, I just kept going. I think if I look back and I think about the young Carl Jones, I shudder because I think I was a bit arrogant. And I know my bosses at the time had lots of problems with me because I wouldn't do what they wanted me to do. And I would do what I wanted to do. And there was a lot of conflict in the early years with me fighting with the people that were actually supporting me so um what the features were i don't know <laughs> what my personality traits were that made, made it successful i'm not sure but i think it's because i've always believed that we can do these things and i always believed that in uh, you know i always thought it was the, the thing to do the right thing to do yeah
0: yeah I mean, I mean, it's just great to hear It, it uh, me listening to this. It's I think when I when I speak to people and I include myself in this when it comes to what I'm involved with, with Raptors, as, um, is you're either a doer or you're a you're a talker, you know, and, and you. Or the, I think if you looked up conservation biology and doers, you'd probably be not far off top of the list um, because yeah, what you've just discussed. So yeah, that's it, getting on and doing things. And I suppose you kind of need to have a little bit of arrogance, you know, being that sort of age, especially when things happen. As If we go back to the question you described, I don't even, I can't even comprehend having 10 birds and over 50% of them dying and then still seeing a way forward with the project. So, you know, that's, that's quite something. That is quite something. Um, I've got, I can't avoid these. I've got a couple of questions that have, have just come in, Carl. So let me just scroll down, sorry, so I can see them again. Um, so Cariad, um, who follows a lot of these, thank you for tuning in, Ad. She's asked, um, what's been your favourite species to work with, if you can pick one? um and is there any advice you could give somewhat give to someone wanting to get into conservation work
1: my favorite species my favorite species is always the one i'm working with at the time and yes of course mauritius kestrels when i go and see mauritius kestrels and i see them in the wild it um i get quite emotional actually i think wow this is just amazing and uh Yeah, it's very special. So the kestrel is very special to me. But when I've been working on tortoises, I spend all my time thinking about tortoises. When I'm working on lizards, I think about lizards. And so I love birds of prey, but I like all the other species as well. And I think that's the joy of being a naturalist, is that the world is such a wonderful and beautiful place and that you can actually get a great deal from every species you look at and every species you get to know. And I've always felt that the more you get to know something, the more you actually enjoy it and love it. You know, there's a lot of people think that science takes away, takes the magic away from nature. It doesn't, it actually does the opposite. The more you know about the world, the more beautiful and wonderful it becomes. And if you're talking about getting involved in conservation, you know, when I started, conservation biology wasn't even a known discipline. It was something that a few people did. Today, there are more conservation biologists than ever, and there are more opportunities than ever. But what I think is really important is that if you're really keen, is you go out there and you pursue your dreams and you work in the areas that you want to work in and to volunteer and to get practical experience. You can't sit back and wait for the job to come, the perfect job to land on your lap because it doesn't happen, you've got to go out and pursue it. Mm. But there are endless jobs out there and there are endless opportunities for young people to go out into the world and make a real difference.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. What would you, just on, on the topic of that quickly, something that's popped into my head, what would you say is the balance between academia and academic work for a, for a young person, 16 years old, deciding on the future A-levels and then onwards, but they know they want to go into, say, conservation biology. What would you say is the balance between acad- academia, because you can go on, obviously, and do your, you know, undergrad, master's, you know, post-grad, all the rest of it to actual field work and get an experience in that what, you, what would you
1: say you is need the... both and in fact it's really interesting because pure academics make lousy conservationists the universities are full of people teaching conservation and they're not teaching about the real world but what's really fascinating is the most accomplished Um, conservationists, and also the most brilliant scientists are actually a mix of both. They can empathize with the animals and understand the animals, but they can also stand back and look at them objectively. And that's a very rare gift. One of the problems we have with academia is it teaches you to be an academic, whereas actually, if you want to be a really good academic or a really good conservationist, you need both. You need to be able to empathize with their animals so you can understand them and ask the right questions. And you also have to be a very good scientist as well. So you need both really. And what's been interesting in my career is I've always tried to bring in academics to work alongside uh, the conservation work And I have whole teams of people from various universities helping with uh, the conservation work. For example, the kestrels are still being studied to this day and they've been worked on with it by various people from the Institute of Zoology in London and so on. And so we've got long-term studies on these species. So we've got a mixture of scientists and conservationists, but actually, is quite a difficult thing to do to integrate them both. And that's something we've got to work a lot harder on. How do we actually do it? Academics very often want to ask very specific questions. Conservationists very often need the answers to very broad questions. How does the bird live? How do the populations function and so on? So I still think we've got a long way to go to integrate common sense and practical ability with the correct scientific studies so i'm oh, yeah. telling you it's work in progress but you can't do one without the other and you need yeah. both
0: yeah absolutely and well, I, I think
1: I... success comes when you can integrate both So
0: yeah yeah i i agree yeah that's well that was spot on there carry out i don't think you could get a better answer than that from anywhere okay uh kevin has asked just quickly the tortoises that you mentioned Um, Were they, were they for, so where did the tortoise, I think the gist of the question is, where did the tortoises come from that you
1: used with, um, with, in Mauritius that you. Okay, Uh, it was really quite interesting because when I, we first started to realise that on pristine Mauritius, when the first people went there, there were herds of hundreds of tortoises. They were open areas.
0: Let me just interrupt, actually. I think I've read the question properly now because there was a spelling mistake. So the original tortoises, sorry, that were on Mauritius, were they captured for the pet trade or were they used as a food source? I think he's getting at why they were wiped out, actually, sorry. So answer
1: that first and then go on to the next. Sorry, Carl. No problem. They were wiped out because they were eaten to extinction. And uh, the early sailors used to collect them because they would survive without being fed on the the boats. They'll survive for weeks. So ships used to dock in Mauritius and also the other island, Rodrigues, collect the tortoises, and they'd use them as sort of canned food, if you like. Mm -hmm. Uh, They used to keep them as ballast. And then when they wanted fresh food, they'd go down and get themselves a tortoise, slaughter it and eat it. So that unfortunately was, you know, what happened, the demise of the tortoise. And the last tortoise on Mauritius disappeared in 1845 and... 1844, sorry. Uh, The last wild one was found and uh, completely gone. And all the islands in the region, there are three main islands in the Mascarene group, and there were at least five different species of tortoises, all gone. And when I started thinking about how can we replace these, I started working with the Natural History Museum in London, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and I worked with the, the tortoise expert there, a friend called Nick Arnold, Dr Nick Arnold, and I said to him what tortoises would have been here. And we did a lot of work together looking at the morphology, the shape and size of the extinct tortoises and trying to come up with ideas about how they would have lived in the environment. And then we started to look worldwide for suitable tortoises. And um, it seemed there were suitable tortoises or there are suitable tortoises in the Galapagos that would have had very similar ecologies, but the Galapagos uh, people didn't want to give us any tortoises. So we had to look closer to home. And there were lots of captive tortoises from Aldabra, Aldabra giant tortoises kept on Mauritius on Sugary state and so I started collecting these and breeding them. And they were the ones that we used to replace the Mauritian tortoise. So the Aldabra giant tortoise. Not the most ideal replacement, but quite close. So it's done the job. All right. I've just um, had another
0: just another thought then that's come into my head. So I, I kind of think I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. When, where are you most comfortable, Carl? out in the field or in a conference, you know, delivering delivering the work that you, you've you uncovered? What, and I think I know where you're gonna go with this, but go on, where are you most comfortable?
1: I'm most comfortable, of course, out in the field. Um, and uh, it's really quite interesting because I often think back at one of my favorite times in Mauritius, and it's always, under some hardship in the field actually suffering and looking back on it and thinking, wow, weren't those great days. So um, I remember very much uh, getting to know the wild kestrels, the last breeding pairs, And before we actually took the eggs to hatch in captivity, I spent a lot of time studying the kestrels in the wild. And I even camped, I lived in the forest and I camped close to the nest sites and got up at dawn and watched them until dusk. So I look back on those times, and although I never quite had enough food and I was always running out of water and get eaten by mosquitoes, and at the time it was pretty grim, I look back with great affection on those days. Yeah, yeah. And more recently, working on rebuilding islands and putting tortoises on islands, um, certainly my time on Round Island, I look back with huge affection camping in a gully where temperatures were so hot in the daytime, you know, you were just covered in sweat. Where at at night, um, you know, you'd get seabirds crashing into your tent where, you know, it really was quite difficult. But there were very magical times where you were close to nature and where you felt nature strength of nature the power of nature the rawness of being close to wildlife and i really like that and of course what means a huge amount to me is that i like being close to animals so working with them in the wild but also working with them in captivity knowing their personalities and understanding them and i like trying to the whole process of empathizing and getting to know animals So understanding my captive animals, understanding their needs, that's also been very, very precious to me. And thinking back over the years, it's those intimate experiences with nature and the animals. But of course, there's also the joy of doing the science. And one of the great joys, which I could never have anticipated, was actually seeing my colleagues grow and develop a scientist themselves. And I once remember reading that the greatest uh, thing that a teacher could ever achieve is for his, his or her students to exceed him in his ability. And when I actually look at some of the students that have worked with me, several of them are now professors uh, running their own PhD labs and so uh, um, you know in many ways they've greatly exceeded what I've done in, certainly in terms of academia and some of these other things and that gives me a huge amount of pleasure as well is seeing how people have grown and are carrying on some of the work that I started.
0: Yeah excellent. because of course that's yeah there's always that important aspect of being able to share what what you're finding out. Otherwise, it's in many ways, it's point. In some ways, it's pointless if you can't share what you what, what you you're working on and your understanding. Have you ever Have you ever been in? I've got this is just cropped up into my head. Everything keeps cropping into my head. Have you ever in the early days? Have you ever been in that sort of situation? Because that I can, I've got limited experience in the acad, academic world, academia. Have you ever been in that position where you were this? arrogant as they're your, that's your words not mine young scientist, where you've gone to a conference and said I'm Carl Jones this is what I'm going to do and and had that experience of people going yeah this 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 guy's off his head he you know what what what's he even doing here has that ever occurred that's it's um, almost like a Hollywood movie
1: sort of scene <laughs> you know uh, like, yes and of Um, Mainly mainly with my bosses, actually. I've had that problem where they completely disagreed with my approaches, but I fought them, and fought them very, very hard. Um, That's happened many, many times, and certainly in the very early days, there was a lot of um, opposition to what I was trying to achieve. Some of my academic friends quite liked the sort of quirky ideas I had. Yeah. Um, some of the bosses thought they were far too risky. And I can honestly say that there were times during my early career when my bosses withheld grant money because they said I was not fulfilling the objectives of my contract or doing things in the wrong way. And uh, so, yeah, I wasn't a very good person to have as an employee, employee I can say that with with with, with Yeah, I can honestly say that. Uh, And certainly some of my early bosses would say, oh my God, Carl Jones was a bloody nightmare. Uh, So yes, there was a lot of opposition. The academic community tended to be quite open-minded, and certainly Tom Cade, who was a great, great academic, he died early last year, and he was always very supportive. And, you know, I think you always get academics who want to push the boundaries and i think that's where i actually got a lot of my support from was from academia where it was the conservation of biologists that were actually kicking back against me it was the opposite
0: right To yeah. what i thought Oh, good excellent right okay i'm just keeping an eye on the time um where should we go next okay let's go to what what does the future hold then we've talked about a huge amount of the past and what you've covered. What's what's the future then, both in species you're working on, your, your opinion on conservation biology going forward? Yeah, hit us with it.
1: Well, I'm a, a conservation optimist, always have been and always will be. I'm a great believer that we can achieve great things and we have to look to the future. And as you've seen, that my approach to conservation has been very much to try and preserve uh, biodiversity rather, you know, in some cases, in novel situations rather than to turn the, the clock back. So I think that the future is very bright. I think that we can save species. And I think we can rebuild systems. If we look at what a lot of conservationists talk about, they talk about doom and gloom, about how we're gonna lose all these species, about how massive deforestation, about all these challenges. And yes, of course, those challenges are real. Those challenges are there. But every species is probably saveable. I know that because of the state of the world, we won't save them all, but we could if we really tried. And I think that certainly in the future, we will be rebuilding systems and we will be genetically engineering species. We'll be bringing species back. They might not be exactly as they once were, but they will certainly be fulfilling the same ecological roles. So I think that if we actually change the way we think about the world, and instead of saying, we're going to turn the clock back, we must look forward and think about what's achievable, then we can be a lot more optimistic. We only have to look at what we've achieved over the last 50 years, positive things, to realize there's a lot more that we can and will do in the future. Of course, there are huge issues. There are issues surrounding climate change. We're now in the middle of a, a pandemic The pandemic has been driven, we think, by a virus which has moved from animals across to humans. It's been facilitated by huge habitat loss and by illegal trade or mass trade in wildlife, so abuse of the wild. So we're beginning to realize that for a healthy, for a healthy planet and for mankind we actually need wildlife we're moving away from the old notion that mankind is separate from nature we're moving towards an era where we're again realizing that we're part of nature and that nature is very very important for us and i think that these massive experiences climate change and pandemics are opening everybody's eyes to the need to understand and to be part of nature again. Yeah. So I think we're going through, I don't think, I know we are going through a massive paradigm shift in the way we look at the world. And I can only be optimistic. Love it.
0: I'm an optimist. That's, I just, well, I think we need to put you on the news for that. That's what we need. All this crap for the journalists. Um, that's that's wonderful, Carl. Um, Lewis has actually finally woken up and he's asked, he, he's put in the UK, so I think he means that part of my question I was asking you, what's going on in the UK? What, what species are you working on in the UK? What's, um, what sort of conservation
1: work have you got lined up? If, if you can talk about it. Yes, of course. When I moved back to Britain, <laughs> I moved back to Britain, or I moved back to Wales in 1999. I'd been in Mauritius for 20 years. And I came back for two reasons. I came back because I miss my homeland and I wanted to come back home. And also, I needed to step back from Mauritius to allow young Mauritians to grow into my shoes. While I was there, they'd always come and they'd come to me and ask my advice. And I thought, well, they've got to grow up. I can't be sitting there running a conservation program. I felt it was very wrong that there I was, an expatriate Brit in Mauritius running conservation. I thought, well, what I need to do is I'll facilitate conservation in Mauritius, but I'll step back and I'll go and live in Wales. And when I came to Wales, I spoke to my bosses at Durrell, and I said that I wanted to change my role, and I gradually have been taking on a much bigger role, advising on a whole load of programs worldwide, being a thought leader, thinking about how we can solve problems, but I've been very interested in how can we apply some of the techniques that we use in Mauritius to working here in UK. And I've been very closely involved in several programmes, and I started a number of years ago working with the Red billed Chaff, which is a, as you know, is a crow. And um, I was speaking to my bosses in Jersey, and they said, well, we'd like to do some work locally. Um, What can we do? And they were thinking about working with some of the species that were still on Jersey. And I said, well, why don't we bring back the chaff? And they said to me, but there isn't any habitat. The habitat's gone. And I said, that's okay. What we can do, bring back the chaffs, look after them and manage them, and use those as a driver to restore chaff habitat. So that's what we did. And we released a bunch of chaffs and we trained them to come back to a whistle and we started feeding them. And then we started working with the National Trust on Jersey and the the Jersey authorities to restore the headlands. And they've put back sheep for grazing so we can get the right type of vegetation structure. Mm -hmm. And this is what's happened, is that we're restoring the headlands, we're restoring chuff habitat, and we now have, I don't know how many we've got at the moment, about 50 chuffs, including a bunch of youngsters born this year on Jersey. And this is a species that had been missing for a century. Oh, yeah. And I'm also thinking about a whole range of programmes here in Britain, Uh, I'd like to bring wildcats back to Wales. Wildcats were present in Wales until 1900, and there's plenty of habitat here. And so I'd like to work to see them coming back, but only only if we can actually get the support and the backing of people. We don't want to just be releasing animals. We need to do it properly. So I've been spending quite a lot of time talking to local conservation organisations and working with other bodies, and um, there's a group of three organizations that are working very closely together to look at the feasibility of bringing wildcats back to Wales. And those organizations are the Vincent Wildlife Trust, Durrell, and also the Wildwood Trust, which is based in Kent. Kent yeah. And we are looking at the feasibility. So this need not necessarily happen, but it's something we're looking at can it happen? And uh, I'm also really interested in using wildcats to bring back to restore a whole community of species here in Wales. We've already had the pine Martin restored by the Vincent Wildlife Trust. But you just think in 100 years time, we could have pine martins back in profusion, we could have restored the red squirrel, we could have beavers. We could have white tailed seagulls on the coast. And if people agree, perhaps we could even have lynx. So we could hopefully in the future bring back a whole community of lost animals from Britain. And of course, it's going to happen. Um, And I'm just a small cog in all this. We've seen the restoration of many species already. The red kites have come back, the goshawks have recovered, peregrines have recovered otters, whole cats have increased. So we're seeing the rebuilding of a system here in Britain. But unfortunately, the politics in Britain is a lot more complex and it's gonna take quite a while. But I'm really optimistic that we will see far more healthy, more complete communities restored. But it's not gonna happen overnight. I've seen in the work that I've been involved in Mauritius, it takes decades to save species or to restore species and probably centuries to restore systems but work we do now will benefit our grandchildren and future generations and i'll guarantee that in the future we will have a lot of those species back maybe we won't have free living wolves and bears but i'm sure we'll have them and under some form of management, fulfilling ecological roles in nature. And this is what we must be thinking about, is not just restoring species, but restoring species that fulfill the ecological roles. So that's what I'm working on now. I'm working with several organizations, seeing what we can do here in Britain.
0: Yeah,
1: excellent. Brilliant.
0: So that leads me on to then the question I know we discussed we were going to talk about, and um, what do you feel then, is the role of, of zoos and, and collections of animals now in, in conservation,
1: um, yeah, in, in general, basically, conservation and education, I suppose. As a young man, in my early 20s, when I went to Mauritius, I was embracing the ideals that Jerry Durrell was putting out there, which he developed in the 1960s and '70s. That we could save species in captivity, have self supporting captive populations, then reintroduce them into the wild. And I thought we could save most of the world's endangered species by captive breeding. And I have, over the years, I've been involved in that movement. And captive breeding is an exceedingly powerful tool. But I can assure you, we are not going to be breeding animals in London Zoo or Payton Zoo or specialist centers for reintroduction into the wild. It just doesn't happen. The world is too complex a place, and it is not feasible to breed species in Britain to send back to Africa. Yes, it happens occasionally with one or two cases, but you just think about it. It's very much an imperialist view. We can save species in Western zoos and send them back to the countries of origin. That's nonsense, it's never going to work, except in one or two cases, but it's never going to be the way to save species. But what we can do in zoos, is zoos and animal collections are really important for teaching people how to manage animals, to develop techniques, and then apply those techniques to free living populations. So instead of breeding animals, in captivity for release to the wild, use captive animals to learn about how to manage wild populations and to train people in the management of species in nature. The most important area of conservation for critically endangered species is not captivity and it's not field studies, but it's the interface between both of them. It's taking captive breeding techniques into the wild. Jerry Durrell always said, my greatest dream is to be able to close down the zoo because we don't need it. We can actually, and I believe we can close down zoos in terms of being captive breeding centres, because we would do not need to breed animals in captivity to put out into the wild, but we need to develop the techniques in captivity to put out into the wild. So it's a very different approach. Mm-hmm. And we also know that if you breed animals in captivity for more than a few generations, they change and they become domesticated. So this whole idea that we're gonna breed species, keep them in captivity for centuries and then put them back in the wild is nonsense. The answer is learning to manage and look after species in the wild, but using techniques that we've developed in captivity.
0: Absolutely, it's interesting. Actually, you make that comment because I'm just reading. Uh, we had um, Professor. Well, I've got it here. Um, we have Professor Alex Alexander Rulin on, and I'm. I've just. I've just started reading his book, or I'm well into it, and he talks about exactly the same thing about you know you can't you can't really mirror to some extent. Um, the continuous breeding of animals and then monitoring them in captivity like lab mice or whatever it might be because it you can't then shift it necessarily straight away into the wild it, it animals yeah change in captivity he mentions exactly the same things in that book um with it so yeah that's uh that's that's interesting to hear it again from uh from you so in your eyes zoos still have a role though Educa- what about the education aspect of it for your you know your, your everyday family um that don't necessarily they're not as hardcore
1: i think i think i think uh, zoos are more potent and, and more powerful than people have given them given credit for yes they have a role for captive breeding minor role but the main role is understanding animals and training people. And of course they have a huge role with regards to education and research. And they are major, major roles and also training. You know, I'm really lucky I work for a zoo. I work for the Durrell Wildlife Conservation Trust. We have our own zoo, the Jersey Zoo. And one of the most important parts of that zoo is that we have a training school. And every year we take people from all over the world that come and they spend three months with us and they do a course there learning about endangered species management. And what we are trying to do in Durham is to actually develop that whole idea of that interface between captivity and the wild. So breeding animals in captivity is not conservation captive breeding is only conservation when that actually benefits wild populations and we must never forget that.
0: Brilliant. Yeah. But there's still yeah there's to say there's still a still a place for, for zoos which is i think it's we we're seeing a i don't know whether it's social media you do see now more of a more of a shift in in people's the the, the and i mean people as in the broader um, society um, with their views of animals in captivity and how we how we use animals if you want to use that word so it's uh yeah it's interesting to get your your te- your take on things um right i'm uh i'm conscious of time we've we've done we've we've hit a good hour um so i don't want to i don't want to take up too much more of your time carl because i uh i know it's a bank holiday sunday weekend and uh yeah so uh so yeah, um, parting parting piece. Then what? Um, what? What was? What would your? I mean, we've kind of covered it in a way. Um, your parting piece as being an optimist. Um, but yeah, what what would your advice be to anyone coming out of this pandemic? The difference that they can make. If 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 you had one piece of advice for anyone, not necessarily conservationist.
1: I think it's to embrace the idea that nature is really important. The whole idea of connectedness with nature is something that we're beginning to realise is very, very, very powerful. And I think the pandemic and the climate crisis are showing us we need to look after nature. Whether it's now back gardens or whether we're young, arrogant people that want to go out there and save species, I think we can make a real difference. And also, I think that we can have big visions, we can achieve great things, but we do it through small steps. Yeah. So we must all think about what we can achieve and move towards those goals one step at a time. And
0: I, yeah, I, I get, I think about something we mentioned when we were on the phone. And I suppose something you, you mentioned and kind of opened my eyes to it as as, as well is, not being afraid that conservation isn't a quick fit because we live in a world now where you want a mobile phone it arrives the next day you want a, you know you want a mcdonald's you get in your car and you go there now you know that, that's the piece i one of the big things i picked up from you is don't be afraid that conservation isn't going to happen tomorrow it's an ongoing journey that we yeah we need to work with um, and work on so yeah Brilliant, Carl. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. Um, I yeah, I'm loving the background. I could I nearly said, oh, we could go through everything that you've got your lad, but I won't do that because we'll be here for another hour, I'm sure <laughs> we'll see, see everything. Um but yeah, thank you very much, mate. Um and we'll uh yeah, I'm sure we'll probably look to have you on again soon, actually. Because there's thank you very of-
1: much. I've really enjoyed it. And remember, all species are savable. Cheers, mate. Cheers.